ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله حق تقاته ولا تموتن الا وانتم مسلمون يا ايها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلق من نفس واحده وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تسالون به والارham ان الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا ايها الذين امنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم اعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما اما بعد فان خير الحديث كتاب الله وخير الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار all praise and glory belongs to allah we seek his help in all our affairs we ask allah to make our affairs easy for us to grant us the solutions to our problems to help us to overcome all obstacles on our way and we ask allah to grant us the correct understanding of islam and to fill our hearts with the light of iman those whom allah guides nobody can mislead them and those whom he leaves to stray nobody can guide them i bear witness that there is none worthy of worship except allah and i also testify that muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is allah's final messenger to the whole of mankind just today as i was driving in to london and we were listening to the news and it becomes very readily apparent nowadays that the powers to be the current political powers they are dead set on carrying out what they see to be the right thing to do they determined it seems in the context of the current political affairs to attack iraq and in an interview with ehud barak he is one of the most decorated soldiers of the so-called israeli army and uh, one of the spokesmen or leaders i think perhaps the leader of the labor party in israel he was talking he was asked about how they should perhaps approach the problem of the palestinians and as you would expect all the blame went to yasser arafat for having spoiled the chance that he had way back in time when something of a, an independent palestinian state was offered but while he was talking about these things he mentioned perhaps after the war with iraq is over then things will fall into place so clearly they're expecting a war and now and then they let slip of this fact although they might regret having not spoken so diplomatically my point is people seem to know what they want to do and they seem to be determined to do what they want to do and here we are muslims don't we know what we have to do should we really be at a loss regarding our faith and what our tasks are that lie ahead because after all allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself has undertaken as we know the responsibility to preserve the message from all types of corruption and all of us can go back to the sources and all of us if we choose by the grace of allah can take on board the correct understanding of islam by referring to the proper scholars of islam scholars of the ahlus sunnah wal jamaah we know we have a mission in life we have a common purpose to worship allah 
and our goals and ambitions are very clearly set out in the final revelation. So how come it appears sometimes that people whom we know to be godless or wicked or unjust, they seem to be very clear-headed about what they want to do and how to proceed about it, and we Muslims sometimes still flounder and be lost as it were, as, as, as if we don't have the information. So in order to perhaps understand our situation and then become in, inshallah motivated to tackle the solutions, we began a series of lectures talking about how things were superbly different at the time of the Prophet wasallam. Because we know we have the same book, we have the entire body of the Sunnah preserved. And we are more in number, and we have better resources at our disposal. We have more money, we have more wealth, if you like, natural resources, and we have more skills, in a certain sense. Technologically, we are more advanced. There are more doctors, engineers, scientists, and so forth. So what was different? And when we get down to it, we find that what was different at that time were the hearts. Not that they hadn't had enough people, but the hearts. So last time we came, we briefly talked about how we have to start off by truly appreciating the value of revelation in our lives. And hold on to revelation as if it is something priceless, truly priceless, more worthy, more worthy more valuable than the greatest diamond one can have in his possession. We found out how people were suffering in the early part of Islam. And they were few in number, but they were greatly oppressed. They were tortured and tormented, they were starved to death, they were being beaten up, and they were being maligned. And yet at that time, Muhammad wasallam gave them hope. And the hope was in terms of two things. One, that we are, by being on this path, on a track to happiness. And happiness is something which is lacking in all the societies in this world today. All the non-Islamic societies. It's truly lacking, for example, in a vastly prosperous country like Japan. The suicide rate amongst the youngsters is phenomenal. And they're materially so well-to-do. And the loneliness problem, so many youth in Japan hide themselves off into their own rooms and become secluded, hermits. But it is worrying the leaders. Why are most of our, are so many of our young people cutting themselves off from society and shutting themselves in, into their rooms? Then you take the suicide problems in other countries. You take the mental problems, for example in Britain, you find it's a growing problem. Happiness is lacking. And Muhammad told us, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that wouldn't you be happy if you were to be, and he ended with saying, half the people of paradise? So that's one angle. The other angle is the true relief of the heart that comes about by knowing that truly, forgiveness is from Allah, and Allah is more than ready, ever ready, to appreciate our repentance. From hope, we understood that what, what followed were specific assurances of victory. Detailed and specific assurances, promises of victory on earth. And these kind of promises were made often at the bleakest period of Islam. Because when the enemy had gathered and they were all ganging up to finish up Islam, we found the Muslims digging in for defense and they were being told there will come a time when you will conquer Persia, you will conquer Syria, you will conquer Yemen. So we not only have hope, we have the great understanding that Muslims are going to face tribulations, we are going to be tried and tested so that what comes out at the end of it is something which is pure gold or pure metal and that those people are going to be the ones who will be honored, inshallah, to wield the authority 
on justice of truth of Islam. We found that when hope was combined with promises, real promises, people were transformed into becoming people of such valor that we cannot find such parallels in society anymore. Few and far between, only now and then. But at that time, every single companion was a hero, unmatched even today by what they put out on the celluloid screens from Hollywood and films and so forth. With all the artificial gadgetry and gimmickry, they still can't create real life heroes that these films inspire. And what frequently these films inspire is cowardice and bad behavior and thuggery, corruption in society. And there were people who had no films, no media, and each one of them became a true hero in Islam because their hearts were in the right place. So we talked about chivalry. We talked about how the companions became such fearless people that nothing could come in their way and nobody could stand up against them. And it wasn't because of their physical prowess, it wasn't because of the great weaponry they had, it was because of their hearts. So we move on, that's where we finished last time. We move on from there, inshallah, by talking about how when people had the hope and they had this overwhelming courage and they had the promises, there were also at that time people who were suffering from all types of general deprivation. Hey, look at our world condition today. I think it becomes sometimes boring to talk about globalization. It's so much thrashed about. It's become almost like a boring point. Because we know it's happening. It's like it's raining for days and you're saying, well, it's all about rain, isn't it? We are wet, that's why we are miserable and cold and hungry. It's raining all the time, that's why. Or people who are suffering in a flood situation. Same way. The phenomenon of globalization is something which has become so rampant and so unashamedly selfish and exploitative that you wonder when there is going to be an end in sight. And the process has hardly begun. The process of proper globalization has not even gone halfway yet. That will happen when there are no trade barriers and all the countries, people of the, uh, all the, the people of the countries of the world are open for, for perfect exploitation. They are just opening up China and they are now investing by the scores in India, in software industry. But you know, the world is still a large place and many more miles to go. So what has globalization brought about? Nothing but world hunger, poverty on a mass scale. From countries which are vastly resourced, like um, Venezuela, or say Brazil, with so much rainforest and cattle, countries like Argentina, down to Indonesia. You'll find countries, people are laboring under hunger and poverty. And there seems to be no way out of this trap. And some people, it seems to be, are destined to suffer and perish in, 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 the, in poverty, being the you know, developing world, or underdeveloped world, and you have the first world, proposing solutions, and giving out loans, and talking about debt relief, but always enjoying the highest standard of living. And you have to ask at the expense of whom, and what proportion of humanity. In the time of Muhammad wasallam, the Muslims suffered hunger and deprivation. It wasn't a global phenomenon, it was localized, but they also suffered from deprivation. So today, all the Muslim countries are dead enslaved and can't progress, then remember this is not a hindrance. This is not an impediment or an obstacle. It's only a mere shadow of how it was with Muhammad himself, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Ibn Umar says, that once we were sitting in the company of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, when an Ansar came, and after greeting the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he was going back. And so the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he asked him, O oh Ansar brother, how is my Sa'ad ibn Ubadah How is he? Let us pause there. Because we are talking about the early part of Islam, and people are few, and all sorts of suspicions are, are cast upon them. And they're not a favored community. And they're at the very least causing annoyance 
amongst whom they live. Much like our situation today. The recent election of another fifth BNP councillor is a case in point. And the interview of the people reflects that they voted the BNP because they had no choice. Not because they are racists, but because they fear what might happen when more and more Muslim ex extremists find expression in this country. Because aren't they coming in through the, the, the doors of the asylum seekers? And Ian Duncan Smith is saying so. A large number of uh, would-be or potential or committed terrorists have come into this country posing as asylum seekers. And the leader of a responsible party. So at the very least, they're an annoyance to the public. But what do you do in that situation? They are asking after each other. And the example is the example of Muhammad wasallam. He's showing brotherhood. And he's asking after one of his people, disciples. How is my brother Sa'ad ibn Ubadah? We have to have this quality. So many technical points sometimes meet our eyes. And sometimes we are so bogged down into the, in the details and academics. We forget the simple points of etiquette, interaction in society. How is my brother asking after someone? How is so and so doing? And of course we have to not assume, we must know, we have to know that when Muhammad sallallahu asks after anyone, it is not a rhetorical question. It is not an empty gesture. It is something springing from the heart, a true concern for the welfare of his people. And it is what the Salaf is to lament. That in our time, when I'm one of the recordings from them, we used to ask after each other, meaning it. How is so-and-so meaning? Or how are you? Meaning, how are you truly doing? Is there any way I can help? If you need help, don't hesitate to ask me. If I can, I will help. If I can't, I will tell you so. But maybe I'll go ask somebody else. But there was true, genuine concern. How is my brother Sa'ad ibn Ubadah radiallahu anhu? So the Ansar said, Salih, he's okay, he's doing fine, he's alright. And Muhammad said, Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which of you would like to come with me to go and see him? Social visit. So when we find situation is difficult, we find ourselves, you know, randomly perhaps victimized or maligned, so that we are portrayed in the darkest colors possible. We find people's hearts and minds are poisoned against what ought to have been the most beautiful people on earth, the Muslim world, on account of their aqidah, the faith. Because of the truth, they should have been the most beautiful people and the precious neighbors to have. People are now worrying about our presence wherever we live. Our character should have been such that they would have been charmed we, should, we have to do this. At least we appreciate each other's preciousness and respect. At least we care enough about each other to want to visit, to write a letter, drop an email, pick up the phone, ask visitors and so forth. And we know the hadith that when we visit each other for the sake of Allah, simply because so and so is a Muslim in a family, we invite each other around. It's a blessed thing to do. And how can we, in this juncture of history, how can we at this stage in time let go of blessings of Allah? Because they are talking about how the next few days are going to determine the course of the world events, history of the world. So they are thinking in terms of global significance. We shouldn't be so naive and to sit back and think life will merrily go along and we just have to pretend things are okay. So we should be in this situation of following the sunnah which reflects the character of caring for each other. So who would you like to come? All of us stood up, of course. Nobody's going to sit back and he's going. So we were more than ten people and none of us had shoes or leather socks or caps or shirts. And we have to have an imagination. Sometimes we have to close our eyes and, and try and imagine. You can imagine the people you know, where they're tall, muscular people, bulging with muscles and, you know... No, what were they like? They must have looked like normal people. Yeah, imagine normal people, a group of normal people. They're not athletes, they're not anything, just normal people. Without, with hardly any clothes on. 
no caps, no, no, no shoes, no socks, no shirts. So what were they wearing? And this is like all of them, Ibn Umar is saying, all of us, more than ten of us, the whole group. So before they were sitting around, you could see, uh, 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 like what you might see in some very poor, downtrodden country, under a tree or on, on, the, on the roadside, you know, dusty a group of people sitting around with hardly any clothes, they're like beggars. Yeah. Of no significance. Nobody can look at them twice and think, they are like people of prestige. And we walked, bare feet, through the stark and sterile plain, until we reached Saad's house, radiallahu Members of his family withdrew from him and the Messenger of Allah sallallahu wasallam, and his companions went up to him. Hadith in Sahih Muslim. So a simple illustration of how at that time the best of mankind suffered hunger and deprivation. This is how they were dispossessed with nothing, hardly anything. They're just wearing a nizar or a sarong or a lungi, a wrapper, waist wrapper. That's it. Can you imagine that at that time, somebody looking at them, say a Roman emperor or a Persian general, would have looked at this group of, you know, the scantily clad people walking around bare feet, and they are going to conquer half the world? Not just Persia and Rome, half the world in 30, 40 years. That their wealth would be so vast that then they will be pouring in from all the corners of the earth. And thousands of years later, people will still be trembling about whether we should attack Iraq or not, because of the had the expected Muslim reaction when the Muslims are already so fragmented and powerless it seems why aren't they debating about it after all? why? we have no king or leader to rally behind we have hardly an army to rally behind yet people are worrying about they seriously consider the reaction of Muslims because they think the Muslims in general, the people in general have the potential to wreak turmoil with their plans. And we are not going to wake up with things. Egypt is quavering. Syria is quavering. Turkey is quavering. All of them. Why? Because they know that people, in, although they have become ignorant and separated and worldly minded and so many things, still they are quavering and quaking. Maybe if they wake up, let's not wake up the sleeping giant. Abu Hurairah reports who that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam once came out one day or night when Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhuma were also present there. So he comes out at this kind of odd time during the day or night. It's an odd time because in a country, a tropical country, you know that a, a midday sun is very hot, especially in a desert country. And normally people are in their homes or in the shade or have taking a siesta or a nap. And after sunset, things get dark very quickly. And normally people don't stay out at night time at all. You go to some countries like a uh, you know, village in India or Afghanistan, you'll find after sunset, you know, people retire very early. Seven, eight o'clock, you're in bed. So there he was, out at an unearthly time or unexpected time, and he finds both of these two leading companions in the streets as well. So he asked him, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, What has made both of you come out at this hour? This strange time? Unsocial hour? And they said, Ya Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam due to hunger. Truthful, to the point, and not ashamed to speak the, the fact. Hunger. The pangs of hunger drove us out of our homes and we came out. Perhaps we'll find a scrap to eat somewhere. somewhere. Maybe someone will invite us in. Maybe something will happen. Rather to walk up in the street, we're doing something, looking for provisions, than sitting at home and starving. And this is something important. They are coming out, not because they don't have self-dignity, but because they want to do something, find some means of earning or sustenance. Maybe we'll find a tree with some fruit. But effort is needed. Yes, we are starving and our, our bellies are roaring or grumbling and pain. But we have come out, driven by the hunger. Got to do something. Can't just sit here and die. And the reaction of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, Wa ana, and I, by Allah in whose hand is my life, I too have come out for the same reason that made you come out. So get up, let us go. Let's go. 
So you can imagine this. What can be worse? How much more deprivation do you want or desolation? How much more? Sanctions would not have, been, would not have allowed this to happen even. But this was the condition that was at that time. The best of mankind, Muhammad وسلم, and the two foremost companions of all the disciples of Muhammad وسلم, were out in the streets at an antisocial hour, unsocial hour, looking for food. And it was, at, it was at the hands of these people. In, when we went through such conditions, Allah established the deen and gave them hope and gave them promises. And those promises are still true. Take the simple case of Abu Sufyan anhu, before he was a Muslim when he was met or summoned to the court of the Roman Emperor Heraclius. And one of the questions asked was, how does he, meaning that person called Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, how does he do in battle? What's the outcome like? And he says, sometimes he wins, sometimes we win. We, because at that time he was not a Muslim. We the pagans, non-Muslims, we win. And even that Christian emperor, and he was a well, uh, he was a well-versed, knowledgeable Christian emperor, because he was surrounded by bishops and so on. Even they had the knowledge. He said, that is the way of prophets. Sometimes they win, sometimes they lose the battles. But the final victory belongs to them. And we know that from the Qur'an. And this hadith was preserved in Sahih al-Bukhari. So we know it's approved of by Muhammad wasallam. this knowledge. So we shouldn't be shaky, or shouldn't feel ill at ease, we shouldn't feel uncomfortable about our destiny, or about our mission, we shouldn't be confused, we should be more clear-headed than the shaitan in his goal. Naturally, shaitan knows exactly what he wants to do, and his cohorts or supporters know what they want to do. And they know that's the only means of making something out of a desperate situation. For us, the situation is not desperate. We have promise of victory. And we know what to do based on truth. So we should not be at all confused and, you know, uh, edgy about what needs to be done what, and what, what, what we need to get on with. Abu Bakr and Umar stood up and all the three went to the house of an Ansar. They went to somebody's house. He was not present. His wife saw the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and she said, Most welcome, blessed you are. Uh, so he said, where, where is so-and-so, the owner of the house? So he, she said, well, he has gone to fetch fresh water and some uh, um, dates. Sorry, it's a fresh water, just fresh and sweet water. So in the meantime, he arrived back, and of course he said, Alhamdulillah, today nobody has more honorable and distinguished guests than I have. Feel so happy. It's a time of common deprivation, people are poor, and yet they were happy to receive distinguished guests. Distinguished on account of what? Their wealth? They have nothing to eat. Distinguished on account of their taqwa, because you can't get a more muttaqi person than Muhammad sallallahu and after him, Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu So they truly appreciated from their hearts that who is greater in station or status. They understood the, the criterion in the Qur'an that he is better amongst you who has more taqwa. So nobody had more taqwa than these three people. So what an honor. What an honor. Nobody on earth has guests like this. So he went out and brought some, uh, uh, some dates, some type of dates, and then he uh, took his knife to slaughter a goat, and the messenger asked him, وسلم, not to slaughter a milk-giving goat. Okay, so anyway, they ate. And the significant thing is, after they ate a simple meal, meal it's just goat meat, dates, some ripe or semi-ripe, and fresh water. That is all. It's not a big banquet, it's not a king's feast, it's nothing. It's normal food. Some meat, dates, water. An ordinary meal. It's a big thing to them though at that time, in that condition. And he said, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, by Allah in whose hands is my life, on the day of judgment, you will be asked about these bliss about these ni'mah, this place. You will be asked. You came out of your homes due to hunger, but before you returned, you had enjoyed these blessings, this barakah. So where is our counting of the blessings? 
Relatively speaking, you know, we have complaints about not being able to pay the bills and the rent is so high and you know, look, and I've got into a mortgage, mortgage situation, what do I do? And yes, we have our concerns, our problems and our difficulties and worries. But consider our situation in England relative to other Muslim women in other parts of the world. Iraq, for an example, and why not? Or Palestine, when last night they killed 12 Palestinians. Every single factory that the Muslims can build along with the Christians, Palestinians, for self-support, just to run a community, they're destroying the names of attacking terrorist harbors. Nothing, they can't have anything. Any metal factory being attacked, they're making mortar bombs. They can't do plumbing. They can't build plows and shears to till the land. And the sanctions in Iraq has been so vastly comprehensive. You know the list. You can't buy pencils because of the graphite. Graphite can be used for explosives. You know the extent of it. So here we are in England. Count the blessings. The food that we eat, the house that we live in, the warm clothes that we wear, and the right to protest and the freedom of speech and in spite of all the imaginations that go on you know, to show how Muslims can and will be a threat in this country you know, I don't know about Finsbury Park Mosque, I've never been there I've never set foot in that place I've never even heard once a word from this person called Abu Hamza but imagine if these things are true they found a canister of CS gas and a stun gun and a replica gun. Do you think that's the weapon of choice for Al-Qaeda? Somebody who reputedly crashed his you know, three or four planes into the World Trade Center and the White House are going to choose a spray, a can of spray? That's not the idea. The idea is to plant into the minds of people the poison against Muslims. The mosques can be places where these things can happen. And they're writing arsenals, weapons cash. Weapons cash? Replica guns are allowed. Kids play with them. You can buy them in from local stores. In Ipswich you can buy cash exchange. Replica guns, swords, everything. So I buy a replica gun, take it to the mosque, becomes a weapons cash. See what if these things are true. Imagine the effect it's having on the minds of people, how they're shaping through propaganda and such vilification. Just imagine. So count the blessings Muhammad taught us, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, by Allah in whose hands is my life. On the day of judgment, you will be asked about these bliss. And we have many, many things to be thankful to Allah for. But it should now go beyond that. We have these enjoyments, these luxuries, these comforts. Surely the ones who are deprived or in need have a share in that. If I can take a bit of that and give it to them, even my time, then I should at least rid myself of the guilt complex, otherwise I'll be developing for having sat on my back and done nothing. So don't we have that guilt complex anymore? We have shut ourselves out from being conscious of the sufferings of the brothers and sisters. And Jabir relates, during the Battle of Ahzab, we were digging in the trench and we talked about it last time. And in the course of digging, we reached a hard rock, and no one was able to break it, and so on. And the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, said, "I shall get down. I will do it myself. Give me the shovel, or the pickaxe, what have you." So saying that, he stood up. And what did they see? We saw that he had tied a piece of stone to his stomach to overcome the pangs of hunger. And what is even more significant is what Jabir said, Radiallahu He said, We too had not eaten anything for three days. Was he exaggerating? Is he telling a story to make us feel more sympathy towards them? Do you think these people were given to fables and storytelling and asking for pity? These people couldn't, didn't care a bit whether people showed them pity or not. What they cared for was, were they hypocritical in front of Allah or not? All of them feared hypocrisy. Every single one of them. 
we too had not eaten anything for the last three days. So in that condition, you can imagine, physically you are going to be weak, obviously. What energy are you going to have? And you are doing hard labor tasks. Anyway, one of the uh, people there, and he had a little bit more than the others, so he couldn't bear it anymore. So he went home and he said, I have seen the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in such a condition that I cannot endure anymore. Can't take it anymore. Haven't you got anything in the house to eat? Nothing. Asking his wife. Again, think, think beyond the, the, the superficial words. It, it, it is portraying something, a situation. The man in the house doesn't know what's in the house. It's showing something about the family life. Haven't you got anything in the house to eat? Asking his wife. Today we go home and say, where's my dinner? Where's that meat I bought yesterday? Haven't you cooked it yet? Haven't you got anything in the house to eat? Wife said, well I have a little barley. And a kid, a small baby goat outside, tethered. Goat. And some barley, that's it. He's a well, sort of a goat. Sort of that only kid, the baby goat we have. And grate the barley, make some flour, start kneading. So making bread, I will go and call him. So he went there, he said, I have some food, Ya Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Could you please come with one or two people and eat the food? So he was trying to uh, help and he wants to only take the number of people that he can provide for. He's not uncharitable in the least. But being practical and realistic, he has asked for one or two people. After all, what's the point of inviting more? You can't feed them. So please come with one or two people, three, four max. And the messenger said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, how many? How many? So I mentioned it to him, one or two people. So he said, but a lot is good. A lot is good. Ask your wife not to take off the broth, the pot, broth pot from the fire, and the bread from the oven until I get there. The first part is a principle. The food for one is enough for two, food for two is enough for three, and so forth. You know? A lot is good. If we can make our assistance reach a lot of, lot of people, it is good. We might not experience miracles and this intensity of blessings, but still our goal should be as a principle to make ourselves as useful as possible to as many people as possible. We shouldn't have confined, limited goals. I want to feed three people only, that's it. No. I wish I could feed, feed the whole world. But how many can I cater for? Three. Well, can you join me? Maybe four at least. Maybe together we can feed four people. Not the three. Although we both would like to feed the world. We start with an ambition. And then pool the resources. And go for it. So how much help can we render to the various needy ones out there? Different types of needs are there. Lot more the better. This was the attitude of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when people are starving, have nothing. Nothing to give. Anyway, so then he, then he asked the Ansar and the Muhajirun, all of them, to say, get up, let us go. So every one of them got up and went to his house. Jabir says, who I went to my wife and said, blessings of Allah be upon you. The Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Muhajireen, the Ansar, they're all coming here. I asked you for a bit of food, I asked for two and three, they're all coming. What did she say? She said, did he ask you? Did he ask you? He's not imposing on us, barging in, is he? He's not gate crashing. Did he ask you? He said, lot is good. He asked you. I said, yes. And this shows, this shows that how sometimes, you know, again, another leading example of a lady in a true Muslim home, how they support each other. The wife is encouraging and supporting the husband. Not saying, oh, you're a responsible person, I told you to go out of control, look what you've done now, what are you going to do now? Not, no moaning, no complaining, no creating panic. But trust, you know, what you've done is good. You've got more than you bargained for, but be assured, he will not be let down. Trust Allah. Because this is happening with the knowledge of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this is how husband and wife support each other. Husband sometimes does something and you know, we don't expect the wife to complain. 
and say, oh, you're being short-sighted, aren't you? You want to give that money in charity. No. We should know. Allah has asked from us to give for the sake of Allah. And giving for the sake of Allah has preceded every, every single ayah in the Quran which talks about jihad fi sabirillah. Except in one ayah only. Giving comes first. Spending comes first. Spend in the way of Allah. Anyway, so they came in and he said, come in but do not crowd. Come in, behave yourselves, don't jostle, sit down, make space, relax. Then he started breaking the bread into pieces and putting meat on it and serving to people. He would take out the broth from the pot and the bread from the oven, cover them up and approaching the companions, hand over the stuff and go back and do it like this one by one for every one of them. He continued doing so till all had eaten to their full satisfaction and even some stuff was left over. Okay, we know about this hadith. Of course, it's not a new hadith. But let us underline what was said at the end of this. Let us highlight this because what we're going to highlight is very important to highlight in our lives. Because after they were satisfied, they had satisfied their hunger, the messenger said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, eat yourselves and send some as a present to your neighbors because they are also afflicted by hunger. Don't forget the others. It's not a question of you know, making ourselves, make, making things work out for ourselves. So we're in a tight spot and we get relief, that, that shouldn't be the end of it. Once you have found relief, yes, charity begins at home. And we've got to take care of ourselves first. Then what? Do not let the concern for your neighbors go away from your mind. And this is how we build ourselves up. We become strong, we become pleasing to Allah. And this is what we should understand by following the sunnah. It's not a mechanical thing. It's not, as one brother was saying yesterday, but I should, you know, what about, you know, getting a job and I want to follow the sunnah, I want to wear a thobe. Oh, come on. You want to wear a thobe and you want to put your, you know, the, uh, the, the goat around your head and, and be made on the door. This is not the way of following the sunnah. But this kind of human interaction which brings real value and changes people's lives, we don't want to do. Very mechanical, our way of appreciating the sunnah. Very dry kind of way. So due to this, due to this type of upbringing, what was different at that time, a remarkable fact, is that people strove relentlessly. People struggled and sacrificed against the greatest odds. You know, non-stop, relentlessly. They were tired, physically tired, but their hearts were never tired. Their ambitions were never dried up and sterile. They were never broken in spirit. Never. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and it started, this spirit was right from the beginning. They had just migrated from Mecca. They'd gone to Medina. Battle of Badr hasn't taken place yet. And already they were sent out a group of them on an expedition, scouting. You know, you have to be out there. Be in the field. Be active. And they were dynamic. And Sa'id I am the first amongst the Arabs to throw an arrow in the, for the sake of Allah. The first time an arrow was used for the cause of Allah was thrown by Sa'id ibn Abi Waqqas It's a little point. It's a wonderful fact to know though. Better than the 101 fact we learn about how long the lizard's tongue and how far the hummingbird from his wings it is much more, much more meaningful. Very first arrow was cast in anger for the sake of Allah by whom? Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and he volunteered. Was he, go, was, he, was he asked to go and start a war or a fight? No. He chose to. That shows the spirit inside him. Eagerness. Ready. They're talking about Ariel Sharon, the war criminal and the murderer of innocent people in Shabra and Shatila. And they're saying that he is loved by the Israelis and they still vote for him because in 1948, when he was only 18, he proved his worth in battle. And his election campaign shows those pictures. He was only 18 and he was eager for the fight, not for other things that other people chose to do. Okay? So the Jews of the Israelis, of the Zionists, they honor this murderer for having shown courage in the battlefield. How do you honor our companions?
we had to carry on jihad along with the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in such situations when we had nothing but the leaves of wild trees to eat, just leaves. Consequently, the shoots, uh, the stools of some of us, the defecation would have, would have become hard and dry like the droppings of goats or sheep. See, in those conditions, they strove. So today, you know, those who strive, they are maligned. Those who don't strive, they ask to be maligned. And those who want to help are cowardly. There are people even who are afraid to use the word jihad. It's like by being diplomatic and compromising and explaining away what Allah has revealed, we can be protected. What's the difference between that and those people who sell alcohol in their shops, saying, I can't get customers otherwise? When a Muslim restaurant owner sells alcohol or haram products in a shop, and thinks that's the way to get customers and make profit, he's showing kufr. He's showing his lack of trust in Allah. He feels more confident in sinning and listening to shaitan than in Allah's providing for him, that Allah is our razik, razak. So what's the difference between that and these people who think we are going to become protected by Allah by giving up from what Allah has revealed? There is a fine line between diplomacy and cowardice. The fine line between playing politics and compromising truth with falsehood. We have to be clever and wise and everything, judicious, prudent, it's a fine line. Make sure when you're walking this fine line, walking on this thin tightrope, you don't topple over into kufr. Abu Buddha anhu, from Abu Musa al-Ash'ari anhu, once we accompanied the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we'll finish with this section and pray after inshallah, on an expedition and we had only one camel that was allotted to us. A party of six who rode it by, rode it by turns. As such our feet were wounded and our nails dropped off and we wrapped rags around our feet. Today we buy expensive winter boots when we want to go hiking in the mountains for a bit of weekend fun. And we think we've done a great job. And this campaign was known as the Ghazwa of Rags or the campaign of rags because of this. Now anybody who has had a, a toe, a toenail taken off, maybe when you kick something awkwardly, you would know the pain. And imagine you're walking and your toenails, all of them have gone off. It's raw. And you're walking on hard ground, stony ground. And it's hot. And it's dusty. And you're doing so without complaining because you're looking forward to something else. No one said it's too hard and no, I can't take it and you know, I don't have shoes and where are my socks gone? No, no. Because their hearts are burning for something else. There's something else in sight. And Abu Abdullah says, uh, Jabir ibn Abdullah, that once the Messenger of Allah وسلم, sent us under the leadership of Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah to ambush and fight with the caravan of the Quraysh tribe. He gave us a leather bag full of dates and nothing else as rations. That's, his, that's it. That's your journey diet. Our leader Abu Ubaidah used to give us one date per day as rations. One date per day per person. So he was asked, well how could you subsist? How could you make do with just one date? The hadith is well known again. But I want to highlight an important point from this. So listen to it. He said, we would suck it like a child and drink some water afterwards. Suck it like a child, meaning how a baby suckles the mother, suckles on her mother, or his mother. When we are normally hungry, what do we tend to do? Eat quickly, isn't it? Bigger the mouthfuls, quicker to swallow, can't be bothered to chew even, just move it down. This shows self-discipline. When this pe- these people knew they had to have a great measure of self-control. Same with us. In times of trouble, deprivation, a lot of self-restraint, patience and self-control is needed. And then we apply what we have in our hands 
Little we think that we have knowledge or time or money judiciously to self-control properly and then it's blessed. That's what happened. It was blessed. It's not humanly possible for a person to survive for days at end on one date per day. And you're on a journey. You walk four hours on the, on, on the trot at a stretch. You see how hungry you get. Just walk four hours. Go on the field, just walk for two hours. They are walking hours and hours at end through the dusty desert in the, in the heat of the sun. One date per day. If they had swallowed it straight away, wouldn't have been blessed. Wouldn't have, they wouldn't have survived. So this is the point. The self-control. Of course it was blessed. It was blessed because they showed self-control. So today we have to show self-control as well. In da'wah, in jihad, in sadaqah, in ta'aleem, teaching, everything. Self-control. We also used to pluck leaves of trees with our sticks, moisten them in water and eat them. So what happened is by and by they came across the seashore and they came across this large fish, a whale as you know, washed up ashore. And after some debating whether it's halal to eat or not, they said, well we are in a constrained situation. We are starving. So it's exceptional, we will eat it. And they ate it. But the point is, look at the, 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 the people's hearts and minds though. They had a bit of relief. They're eating, they, they said there were 300 of them, 300 of people. They grew fat or put on body weight because of eating large pieces of flesh like ox. They would cut out from this fish and bucket full of oil, you know, from the fish. They became healthy and strong and fatter. But the fun they had, the good time they had. So they were humorous people or people who were normal. They were special only because of their courage and faith. Otherwise they are people, as people, mortals. And they had fun, enjoyment, brotherhood, they played games. They said Abu Ubaidah made us sit, 13 of us, in the socket of the, the fish. So you can, it's like taking a group photo. You can imagine a companion, we go on a camping trip, and 10, 15 of us stand on a ledge and take picture together. That kind of thing. Oh, and, sitting in the, and then they put two ribs of the fish together and made the tallest of us, you know, like a camel pass underneath it. So they must have been laughing, oh, standing there gloom and glum faced. So, enjoying themselves, having fun. When it comes for business, they are serious. They don't care about dying or becoming injured. But then when they have a bit of time and relief from Allah, they are enjoying themselves. So let us enjoy as well, but take it in context and in perspective. It can't be all the time fun, and it can't be fun by ignoring our situation. It can't be all smiles because we choose not to think about our predicaments. It can't be like that. But when we get moments of relief, we have fun, we play games, football, this and the other and so on. But take it in perspective. We have a serious mission to fulfill. And our mission is being jeopardized by the global onslaught against this ideology. Because this ideology is the only ideology which, which frees people from servitude or slavery to each other, to the slavery of one and only one Allah. May Allah guide me and guide you. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive all the Muslims past, present and future. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala support and assist with the angels and his barakah and his guidance and protection all those who struggle and strive in his path. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala strengthen their families and comfort their bereaved ones. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also grant, grant us the best of paradise. Al-Jannah al-Firdaus. Ameen. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shadu wa la ilaha illa anta astabakum ilayka wa jazakumullahu khairan.